Jen, my book is done. My grade reports are done. Yeah, school's out forever. <laughs> okay, not quite. <laughs> it's not summer it feels, yet, but it feels like it over here. It, <laughs> it honestly does. It's like the best time of the year. <laughs> My summer vacation is um, April through June. <laughs> we'll see there. And then go. I start over again. <laughs> we need to get ourselves on cycle so we can both be off at the same time. I know. And then we could just sit around and read romance novels and talk to each other about them. Except that's what we do anyway. <laughs> <sighs> oh, that's true. Wait, it's the best so part of my life. So you do grave reports. So I do them at the end of the first quarter and the third quarter. So what do the kids do in the fourth quarter? They just get a grade, but they don't have to write comments. Oh. Does that make sense? Because they're, like, prescriptive. Sure, sure. But at the end of the year, it's over, and you can't fix anything, like, so it's over. At the end of the year, you're like, they aren't going to remember any of this. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the nice thing is, when I finish the ones in March, I don't have to do them again till October. So it always feels oh, like, see, right? That's nice. That's yeah. like writing a book. Exactly. So instead, I teach this class at Northwestern in the spring quarter because apparently I don't have enough to Because you're an overachiever. It's true. So say we all. You're probably going to write like seven novellas or something, so don't be <laughs> judging me. <laughs> Yesterday, I was like, ooh, what could I write in my free time? See? And then it was like I had disturbed the force and my editor texted me. <laughs> Copy edits incoming. <laughs> Um, welcome everybody to Faded Mates, the romance novel where we goof off and talk about romance novels in your ear holes. Oh my God, it's the best thing. It is. I love it. Wait, I didn't say that right. It was fine. I think I said the romance novel where we goof off and talk about romance novels. The podcast. The podcast. The podcast where we do... (laughs) I'm like, I really do... Now I'm like, school is out. It is summer. I don't... What our word... Well, I'm Jennifer Prokop, and I'm a romance critic and reader, and I know what words are, so I will help you along through these <laughs> times of struggle while you just are, like, giggling. I'm Sarah McLean, and I read romance novels, and I write them. And we're coming at you with Mary Balog. Yes, a matter of class. I pronounced that. Again, I want to publicly apologize. I did it last time, but I've been saying it wrong for 20-some-odd years. You know what, though? I feel like even your name, people never know to say McLean or McLean. So Yes, it's McLean. Like yeah. John McLean from Die Hard. I like it. How will I ever how forget? we should all name ourselves. I mean, now I'm going to be like, I'm a Jennifer <laughs> Diesel, like Vin Diesel from... <laughs> I'm changing my name, everybody. Um, and not McLean, but yeah. I can see why people think it's McLean. Sure. Because it's spelled that way. Yep. I'm glad we could do that. So anyway, Mary Balog. <laughs> hundred um, episodes in, let's clarify the pronunciation of your name, everybody. <laughs> that was on my list for Jen, episode Jen 107. Prokop. Yes. We are just, it's like hard to understand how like loose I feel though, right? Because of yeah. grade reports being over and yeah, the book being really done. Like how you shake, you shake yourself out at the yeah. end of it. Absolutely. Um, My daughter has been desperate to, as you can, as you all know, you and my daughter have had the similar feelings about me, I think, over the last couple of weeks, which is um, (laughs) (laughs) this bitch, loosely, they are, this bitch said she'd be finished by now. (laughs) Um, And the truth is that I wasn't. And so for many, for several weeks, my daughter has been saying she had a special mom-daughter thing she wanted to do with me when I was done. And um, so when I was finished, she took me for a walk on a very beautifully sunny day in New York City, which was like a gift. I turned in my book and I had like a 70 degree day. Oh, so nice. And so we took a walk and she walked me to the main street by our house uh, to the window display of our local wine store, which was a massive paper mache octopus. Oh, and I'm sure that I don't, I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I like an octopus. You are. He's playing a trombone, and I will give the picture of it to Jen, and we will put it in in you the can podcast. look at it right now. So when you look at your at your podcasting app, the photo is this display, this Brooklyn octopus. <laughs> that is my excitement for the for the week. I saw an octopus. 
Um, Sarah, this week we are reading A Matter of Class, which is a book you selected. I did select it, and I haven't read this book, so I'm going to tell yeah, why. So tell I us the story, it. yeah. Okay, so this is A Matter of Class by Mary Bellog. And there have been a number of you have tweeted us and DM'd us and emailed us asking for us to do a Mary Bellog episode. And I assume you all wanted us to do the Bedouin series because that is Mary Balog's like hallmark series. And it is a it's a it's a massive text in historicals. And they're beautifully done, and nobody does a kind of like quiet, stiff hero like mm-hmm. like Balog does. And she always um she's so thoughtful about the way that she builds a story and she cares so much for the world building. And that I even in this like short novella, I was reminded by how much mm-hmm. she really thinks about like really embedding a story in a society and a world. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but we didn't do that because when I was writing, I think I was writing uh, A Rogue by Any Other Name, the first book in the Casino series. And okay. my, my editor, Carrie Farron at Avon Books, has been with me for 15 books now, which is yikes. <laughs> and um, and at the time, so that was my fourth book with her. And every part of why I really love working with Carrie is that we both came up through romance in the same way. Like she's been editing, she has edited many of the big, big names that we have talked about on the podcast before over her career. And um, she's read all of these kind of big texts that we have talked about that blooded us, right? Mm-hmm. Like she was involved with publishing Sandra Brown's Texas Chase. And so we had a whole conversation wow. yeah. about that exclamation point. Like, and these kinds of, you know, so she, whenever I have a question about the history of the genre, I go to Carrie and she always like knows it. Um, And when, and so she, when she gives me notes, like right now she's reading a manuscript that I wrote and right. I guarantee you that at some point over the course of reading this book, she will in the margin sort of write more McNaught here or, right. you know, more brown here or whatever and and it'll be a a shorthand between us that the whatever that section is needs to be in re, in revision just like boosted emotionally right. in some right? way so right w- we've talked on the podcast about what that can mean and she we never have to talk about it she just writes you know McNaught here and I know what she's saying she often gives me reading lists in the in the editorial process so she'll say I'm reading this book and it's making me think of Right. Whatever. So I was writing um, A Rogue by Any Other Name, which is a childhood, like, friends to enemies to lovers story. And at the time, she was like, have you read Mary Balog's A Matter of Class? And I was like, I have not. That's like a random, it's sort of like a one-off. It does not connect to any of the other series, I don't think. And I read it, and I was so as we as everybody knows who listens know everybody knows that I love a book where a writer's trying to do a thing, yes, right, and doing something very different than what you know the genre necessarily is usually used for, and that is why I love this book because she is even on the reread. So I hadn't read it in years, and on the reread. I was like, this is still, nobody's done this before. It was really. Or so, since. Yeah. So I. So I've, I should say, wait, before yeah, you go ahead. before you talk, I just want to say, if you are a person who like is late to the books and like sometimes listens and then comes back at the books and you also care about spoilers, like I yeah. really think you don't want to listen to this episode. Until you read it. Until yeah. you've read the book. And that is your warning. Like. Sure. From because here on you can't, in. The, uh, the whole reason why I want to talk about this book is not actually the plot of this book. Right. It's the structure of this book. Well, before we start, let me say, you know, it's really interesting because we had a question last week about, like, can you be a casual romance reader because it feels like you're supposed to read everything? I am a, I, I feel like I am a very, uh, I know romance. I have never read Mary Bellog before. 
and there's just people you don't read for whatever reason, you know? I mean, you you don't get to them, and then it seems too overwhelming, or who knows? And so, and I remember once I had an English professor who joked that, like, the English professors would get together and, like, sort of wow each other with what they've never read. And he's like, yeah, I was somewhere once where the guy's like, I've never read Hamlet. And all the other English teachers were like, <laughs> right? <laughs> Winner! <laughs> right? And And, you know, so the thing to remember is, like, Romance is so vast. It's not even possible for everyone no. to have read everything. There's no shame in just not, you know. So I was thinking about it in terms of like that question from last week because, you know, even I, I, yeah, I don't think this is where I would start someone on Balog. I don't like, either. You, I don't care about. Yeah, exactly. No, it's fine. But my <laughs> point is, is yeah, it's true. Like I was fine with it, right? <laughs> and actually, it'll be really interesting for us to talk about it. Because I also am really interested in structure and narration and, like, when authors make really interesting choices and what I think those choices are trying to achieve, right? Because we talk about that a lot. Like, right, what's the book trying to achieve? And it's clear to me that this book is not really trying to achieve, like, at all, like, kind of the straight HEA romance. That is, it's really trying to do something different. And it was Mm -hmm. a fascinating thing to read, um, and I'm really interested for us to talk about it, but I'll I'll save. So I, I guess I will say this: at the end of chapter two, I knew how it was going to end. I wasn't well, surprised. We talked it. enough about it too, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I would say that would be like coming to it if you've read a lot of romance and you yeah. pay attention to your spider sense. <laughs> I don't, which is how I like. I don't think that you would not get what was going to happen, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I definitely remember feeling like it was a surprise. So, I mean, I think we have to, we're just going to, we're going to, let's do the plot. Let's do the plot. Right. Okay. So you go. The book starts off with Reggie, who is a, like, young wastrel. He's about 25. He's been spending his father's money like there's no tomorrow. On, like, boots and waistcoats and things. And gambling. Like, really. And, And there's this... And what it's clear is his father is like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put you in order. And the way that's going to happen is you're finally going to have to get married. And Reggie, they are not um, titled. They're not the gentry, right? Is that the right word? Yeah. His father was a coal miner, made a lot of money in coal. And his father has always wanted to be accepted by that crowd, but never could because he's, you know, not even a merchant, right? Just like a straight up commoner who just made a ton of money. And, um, but Reggie has been educated in the way that he, like, kind of has those people as friends. And so he's talking to his father, who's like, you're gonna, you know, have to get married. And then up kind of the the neighbor, their, like, neighbor comes up, this girl, Annabelle, who has tried to run away to get to elope with the coachman. Yeah, and, like, really got herself ruined. Like, yes. Like, was seen kissing the coachman in front of... You know, everybody in London, and then they got in the coach and tried to take off and got caught, and she got brought back to London before they could elope, and the coachman abandoned her, jumped out the window, and ran away. And now this rich man that she was going to marry is no longer interested in her, and the, yeah, and her father, the Earl, has been, like, really struggling with money, and so all of a sudden, Reggie's father. Yeah, she's beautiful and has one job, which is marry well. Marry well. Marry rich. They really have to get, like, dug out of this hole the dead is made. And um, Reggie's father is like, here is my opportunity to stick it to her father. Yeah, because they're neighbors and they hate each other because the her father's always been like, oh, his He's money is, like, ta- right. like, tainted with coal. And and he thinks that—and that, um, then the coal miner thinks that uh, her father is, like— High in the instep and snooty, which yes, which he is, right? And so he basically is like, We're gonna go over there and we are gonna essentially say, You will, I'll bail you out of this mess you're in if you, I will save your daughter and I will fill your coffers and our kids are gonna get married. Then the story jumps back and forth in time, right? And it's indicated in the text at this point. That neither Reginald nor Annabelle are happy about this match. Right. They are right. both very clear to their parents that they do not want this. This is not how they want it to be. 
storyline, the sort of present day storyline. Anybody who reads my books knows I also really like time slip. Anytime where you're seeing like the story is coming together over time and you're seeing different pieces at different times. I like books that are not linear and it's not a linear book. Um, and so the, the present day story is basically just, it's very quick. It's marriage. It's like the proposal or the sort of we're, we're here, we'll marry her to the betrothal ball, to the wedding. I mean, it's like yes. bang, bang, boom. Right. And so it's like a very short courtship. And then the backstory is told over 17 years. And it's every time Reginald and Annabelle have met at this, like, river that runs between their house their houses their parents right. state. so it's like 17 years ago when he is when they first meet he's eight and she's five then it's she's 15 she's 12 and then she's 18 he's 23 or 24 there's one in the middle they kiss at some point too in the middle yeah and so um yeah and then the last meeting is one year before present day and so there is and Obviously, like the the kind of the thing you know as a reader, just going back to what Jen said, I think the thing you know as a reader is like, okay, there's more between these two than you know meets the eye. Like they've clearly known each other for 17 years and like been having these private meetings and clearly care about each other, right? Like Anna falls in love at one mm-hmm. of the in like Anna has that like moment where she's like, I'm in love with him when she's 12, like, and it sort of moves forward from there. Um, the thing that I know surprised me was the structure of the reveal at the end where Balog reveals that not only have they been into each other for all this time, they've orchestrated the entire lead up to them being forced to marry because they couldn't, she had this like great match lined up with an Earl, a rich Earl, and they knew their parents would never approve of this match. And at one point Reggie says like, I can't marry you because if I did, your family would, like, basically disown you. Like, we can't run away. We can't make this happen. And so it turns out it's revealed at the very end that Annabelle has, like, basically came up with a whole plan for her to be publicly ruined. And And them to swoop in to save them, right? Yeah. Okay, so chapter one is, like, she's ruined. You're going to offer for her. Chapter two is 17 years ago. And then chapter three kind of returns back to, like, the ball. And it was at that moment that I was like, oh, they set this up. All of this was, like, them orchestrating this. And then it was just a matter of, like, watching it unfold. You're a better reader than me. I knew there was a twist. I mean, I've made a thing about, like, don't look into this book. There's a twist. Like, so you're sort of looking for a twist. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not I, – I, I don't try to find it. Also, as a reader, like, I'm not that interested in, like – How's it going to work itself out? I think I'm really highly attuned to, like, well, that's weird. Like, I pay a lot of attention to that. On the reread, I was like, oh, look, here are all these really interesting moments. Sentences that you could read, one, that you are naturally, I mean, look, I wrote an entire series like this, right? Yes. Where there was a twist at the end. Right. And, like, Sentences that are specifically constructed to, in your mind, indicate one thing, but, like, never actually say that thing. So this was the part that was, like, really fascinating to me was both, like, the structure, but also, like, the narration. But, like, let's talk about the structure first. Yeah. Because the time slip thing, and I would say, like, as a, a reader, I'm interested to hear you as a writer talk about why you think, like, choices were made in terms of, um, like, the ages they were, or just, like, really discreet, like, what happens at each meeting. I mean, this book is, what, maybe 200 pages, six chapters? It's short. It's it's really highly structured. Mm -hmm. And thoughtful, right? I mean, like, and this is a thing that you can say about, I would say, a hallmark of, there are two hallmarks of Balog's books in my mind, right? And I I welcome, I know some of you out there listening are huge Balog fans, and, like, I welcome your thoughts on this. Um, for me, those two things are a very 
she has a clarity of language or an econ- she uses an economy of language mm-hmm. in that she does not use a word she does not mean ever. Like she knows exactly what she is saying in every sentence. And that can be uh, in this read. I was like, this is so old fashioned in some yeah, ways. That's a and good I word don't for it. mean that in a na- I don't, I hate that because there's a suggestion that if it's old fashioned, it can't be like valuable no. anymore. But like, it's so, you don't see writing like this in historicals very much anymore because right. we're all like the sort of, modern crew of historicals, like those of us who came up in the last decade, for example, um, we're doing a different thing on the page. Right. But like, she's really doing, like, this feels like a book that could be, could have been published 20 years ago, or it could have been published 100 years ago. Right. And it was, for those of you looking, it was 2009. For those of you like wondering at home, right? Yeah. So it's really not... It's so it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago, but it but feels it, like timeless. Yes, in some way. it feels time. Maybe yeah, that's I agree. a better frame, a better framing of it than like, old fashioned. Like feels you timeless. Can't, if I yeah. handed this to you and said, "When was this written?" You wouldn't say 2000. I would not have known. No, I would not have said that at all. And I think that that's true. I think there is a timelessness to Balog's writing that puts it that gives it a kind of sense of there is a there's a gravitas to it, and that's the second thing, which is. I think Mary Balog's books are more serious than most romances. Yeah, there's nothing funny or joking. There's no attempt even to, like, lighten. No, I think she takes the work, and by that I mean, like, the the actual physical work of it, Mm -hmm. not the, like, laborious work. I think she takes the work incredibly seriously. Like, and I think the books feel serious and have weight, for that in some way like she does so much work to manipulate the reader in the reading experience again i i think you are manipulated as a reader every time you read like we're all every sure, writer that's is what thinking, we're there like, for how yeah. can i manipulate the reader in here and make them feel whatever it is i think mary balog is very keenly aware of the idea of setting her books down as serious text. I agree. And I think that's, I think there are a lot of writers who want that and it gets gummed up in the works. I think that's a really, yeah, here's what else I would say. Because sometimes I think a lot about like, if I was a romance author, like what would I say, like read, like write, what would I say, read this because of. So I sometimes use this word baggy to describe a book that's carrying around too much shit. Guilty. There's nothing, right? <laughs> and it's, I wouldn't even say it about your books, but you, there are times where you're just like, right? It's, it's baggy. You know, this could have, like, it feels flabby. Yes. That's how I say it. That's what I say. But and yeah. there's nothing baggy about this book. And in fact, it feels like a book where, um, so there's something I say to students. I guess I've been talking a lot about things I talked about to kids. When we read graphic novels, right, There, I'm always like, you can't just read the text, right? You have to also read the images. And and it was, um, I think, Margie and Strapani, who wrote um, Persepolis, did an interview where she said about graphic novels, like, I draw what I can't write. I write what I can't draw. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with this book, it feels like it could have been twice as long, and she just ruthlessly cut everything out of it Mm -hmm. that was not like I I mean it just it feels like uh, the work is very much on the reader which is very rare in romance yes like we are the genre like it or not right we are the genre of purple prose yes we are the genre of like you can't describe somebody without describing their eyes in like 16 different colors right right so The idea that she would just sort of strip all of that out and leave you kind of on that riverbank with these two characters. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, of course, because she doesn't want to give it away, right? Like, there's a level of, like, I have to hold this back because there's a secret, right? And I can't... It goes back and forth. It goes to... um, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this related to first person, but... The thing that my friend Carrie Ryan, who writes YA novels, 
always says is the biggest failing of writing in first person is when the reader is reading, is when the, the I'm sorry, the narrator is telling you the story and there's a secret. Yes. And she or he refers to the, the secret in the text and hides it from the reader because right. no one would ever do that. If you right. were in my mind and I had murdered someone. I knew that. I, I know that. I would be right. like, what if Jen knows my secret? I'd be like, what if Jen knows that I, I murdered like, someone? a body in the freezer? Right. <laughs> and so what is happening in this book is she is she is tightening. But romance, we did this last week or two weeks ago when we talked about like what is romance. Like Romance is about revealing everything. Right. So the idea that you would write a book that read this way mm-hmm. in this genre, it's very cool to me. So I was thinking about first person as well, although I will admit this is not in the first person. No, it couldn't. It couldn't. <laughs> FYI, be. everyone. It couldn't be. And in fact, it's not even really, it's not even really like close third. It can't be. Be- right, same reason. There is an omniscient narrative. Yes. Here. There are sentences where I literally was like, who is this? Yeah. Right? It's like, um, and somewhat unreliable. So I am now going to do something I we don't normally do if Sarah will let me, which is to talk about a book that, like, doesn't work, that tries to keep a secret. And it's because it's a Sylvia Day book. It's called A Butterfly and Frost, and she's never going to listen to it, so it doesn't matter. But this is a book where um, it's present, it's first person present, and it's there's a secret. And what it is is there's a there's a woman, and she meets this man, and um, they start to have an affair. And at the end, I'm going to reveal this again. Like it, Jen told me about this when she did read it, and I did read it because see previous statement about I like it when, when readers writer try tries something, tries right? To do a thing. I don't right. care if it fails. I'm much more interested in the journey, in the attempt, right? But it, it, what is revealed at the end is essentially that this man is actually her ex husband, and they had a child who died. And literally, I got to the end of this book and was like. I don't actually understand what happened here that someone who is narrating not only in first person but present tense is keeping a secret from themselves and from the reader at the same time. And it struck me as being like, I was just like, this didn't work, (laughs) right? It didn't work. And I think part of the reason it didn't work is because at that point, I got to the end and I thought, this woman is really sad and needs a lot of help and therapy. I didn't want her to have a happily ever after with her ex-husband. What I wanted was for her to get help because I was like, if she really is like hiding this information from herself about the loss of her child, she has not really dealt with it, right? And it didn't feel happy or hopeful or any of the ways you want to feel at the end of a romance novel. Right. And I think that's where this book understands fundamentally if you're if it's going to be based on a secret then the type of narration has to change because otherwise we get to the end and think wait why right like the disconnect is too vast and i don't know if that's like being an unreliable narrator i mean we're all unreliable narrators at some point yes, right yes but in romance in, in romance in romance right so and and the, I act, yeah. It's not, it's not that the narrator is unreliable. It's that the narrator isn't there, right? Right. Like, so the narrator yes. is present and telling you the story, but not in deep, close third, right? right. Which is, I think we have done the, clo- like, the definition of POV, but mm-hmm. close third is when, you know, you're reading along in a romance novel and it's like, she felt like, you know, pain in her chest and like she you can hear she their, long their for him yes. are, like in italics in the texts like all of that is close third like when the narrator actually speaks the feelings of the character in this case periodically they do right. but it's spare very, very spare. spare and and sometimes you're like who's saying so there's this one sentence where I highlighted it, right, where it's dash it all. She looked as if she had been suffering in italics, as no doubt she had. And I thought, 
who is that? Is that Reggie? Who's is talking? It, who, right? It literally feels like this observation. Wait, who's, who's POV is that in, though, that scene? So, is it Reggie? Yes. But there's these, yes. Yes. Right? But so in that moment, that's a perfect example of, like, who is that, right? Who is that talking? Yes. Of course it's Reggie, because he's been suffering, too, and he knows the score. Right. Yes. You don't know it, Jen. Right. And, like, it's so fascinating to me it is how this book is put together because it really does blow up i'm actually really glad that we're doing this on the heels of the what is romance episode because it blows up that sort of signature convention of the genre that we said you kind of have to know exists in order to understand what the genre is doing and I would be very curious about, like, what a person would think of this book if they'd never read a romance novel and they read this book. Sure. They'd be like, what the fuck is going on, I think. Well, because here's the thing I was thinking. The, like, a straight version of this book that's 300 pages is we get them meeting 17 years ago, meeting 10 years ago. You know, we get their history kind of moving forward, and then we get them plotting together and the execution of the plot. And then we get the, right, then we get their happily ever after, their wedding night. Mm -hmm. The problem with this, that version of the story is that the other really big part of this is they both love their parents. And they are tortured by what they are putting their parents through to get what they want for each other. Mm -hmm. And if you tell this, if you tell this story like sort of straight, then you get bogged down entirely in their back and forth bickering about whether or not it's going to work and how hard it is. And no one wants to read that. No one wants to read that. Mm -hmm. And the way she elides that whole plan, like the conversation of why they can't be together is like two pages. Like it's, it's nothing. And it's 90% of the way through the book, right? Right. I mean, it's given to us at the beginning. And, like, we know why, right? Because the other piece of this is, so I'm watching The Crown with Eric. This Mm -hmm. is relevant, but I'm watching The Crown with Eric, and periodically something will happen on the— So Eric knows absolutely nothing about the monarchy. Nothing at all. And I know probably more about the monarchy than I should. So (laughs) we we are not, like, a great match when it comes to, you know— conversations about the British royal family, which <laughs> remarkably over the last two weeks have been really relevant. Like Anyway, so, but periodically something will happen on screen and I'll be like, hang on a second. And like, there's like pause, we have to pause. And I yeah. say, here's an important thing you need to know about the fact that, for example, like Princess Margaret can't get married without the queen's permission. Yeah. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because rules. Like, yeah. Because royal. royalty rules. I mean, like, frankly, literally every night, Eric's like, I don't understand why this is happening. Why? And I'm like, because, I mean, have you not been paying attention? Because the, the woman, like, lives in a castle. Because <laughs> the institution wants it that way. Yeah, the firm exactly. has decided, right? Exactly. So what is happening here in this book, and the reason why I really don't think this book would work for non-romance readers, is that... There are so many things that are just understood in the text, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we understand exactly why their love for their families would preclude them from being able to do this thing, right? We understand why when they meet, you know, on the the riverbank every time, it has to be private. They cannot be seen. Right. um, Because they would wreck whatever. And I think that... um, those rules, like those conventions, fascinate me even more in this text because Balog has like eliminated so much, including that stuff. Like she is like all that's left are the rules. Yeah. And she trusts the reader implicitly to just like she, there is no moment where Mary Balog is like, as you know, Bob, whatever. Right. Like you're just in it with her. And I think that's so brave. Like, yeah, I'm constantly like, hey, everyone, you remember that this is going to ruin her, right? Like, she does not have time for that. No. I'm so glad we're doing this book this week. It's so perfect. I mean, I know we yeah. made everyone wait, but now I'm really glad. <laughs> it, I wish we could say it was on purpose. <laughs> it, was on a, it was on purpose, but it was fake. <laughs> 
we have talked a lot about how important character building is and the importance of internal conflict and change. If you, again, again, a lot of it is like thinking about writing the story straight. It becomes all about external conflict, these two against the world. But you flip it and do it this way, and it's all internal conflict. All of it. All of it is, like, about them, about their feelings, about wanting each other. One wants one, one doesn't. I've loved you for years, right? All of it then becomes about their feelings and their, like, guilt, the way they feel about their parents, like, the deep respect and love they have for their parents, even though their dads are, like, totally, like, you know, and it's very (laughs) Romeo and Juliet in some ways, right? Like, how would we get around the feuding family? We're star-crossed lovers. How could we actually have, like, made them think it was their idea? Yep. And it's just by inverting the narrative that you can get to, you avoid all of the, like, bagginess of them plotting and planning and hiring the actor to be the coachman. And instead, you get just, like, it's just pure feelings. Yes. And I would say there is such an innovative use of time slip here. You... Mm -hmm. You asked like this all a million yeah. years ago. You said why why these five, four or five past right. scenes, right? Why th- these ages and these places, or this this particular place and these ages? Um, and I think that what is really interesting about this is so I've written two things that are time slip. And I, I, because it is one of my favorite conventions in romance, I have read a lot of books that are time slip, that involve time slip. And I think um, that there is, I think one of the things that is usually, when you get to a time slip romance, um, often the past timeline is is to show you why everything has gone to pot. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote Day of the Duchess, for example, and it was very much like, here are all the ways that their past basically conspired to put them in a position where they are no longer right for each other. And then we meet them on the first on the day, like when she's finally like, I'm I need a divorce like this. I need to be free of you. Right. And that's page one of the book. And then the past ten the past timeline is all sort of peppered in for why emotionally they cannot be together right and why why um both internally and externally um and I think that but what what Bela is doing here is not why can't they be together it's why should they be together despite yeah. all odds right and I think that's fascinating. Like we're not seeing the dissolution of a relationship in that in that past timeline. What we're seeing is like two two characters who are really like apart from each other, tethered to each other because the rest of the world is using them as like play yeah, props, right? Exactly. And so they find each other and can't help but constantly like find found find themselves grounded in each other so the only time they are ever together is when they are when they're in that river like right keeping each other from drowning right like they're sort of the only steady steady figures in their lives because everyone else thinks of them as props like you said so if i could say there was one thing that i i didn't really like in time slip which is there's a the scene where he's 15 and she's 12 Yeah. Was the one that worked the least for me. It's tricky, right? Because it's the middle. It's that weird age. Yeah. Well, and he's, like, checking her out, and, like, it's kind of she's prepubescent. And I was like, meh, get all that out of there. It didn't – that part, I was kind of like, meh, that doesn't work for me. As opposed to his, like, kind of, like, I'm 15, I'm too cool to hang out with a 12-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. Some of that just felt, like, a little bit off. Yeah. Um, Which, whatever. I mean, it just was, like – it kind of felt like a, the wrong note was playing, I guess I'd say. Yeah. Um, the thing that also was really interesting is we don't really often talk about, like, titles, right? A matter of class. But this, the other, the other thing that, like, stripping the book down and kind of putting it in this order and using this structure really allows you to see how class is impacting both of them. And the, like, levers that both of them can push. So, for example, the night of the betrothal ball, 
There is Annabelle's family has a dinner, and he, he and his family are not invited to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's the lever that they can push. Like, we can make it so that you cannot enter these rarefied spaces. You're going to force your way into it after this marriage, but not before. Right. The other thing that's fascinating is, like, how there's, like, a counterweight, right? Is that we kind of think, like, of his parents as being, like, kind of big and blustery. And then they invite them over for tea, but it turns out it's, like, a family party. Yeah. And, you know, and and the, the her dad's the Earl or whatever. He is, like, just sits there and kind of ignores everybody. And we see Reggie, like, reaching out to him. And it's, they're fascinating scenes where, like, we see the way in which, you know, and then, like, the moms, it turns out, would be great friends, but they've prevented, been prevented from being friends. And, you know, he doesn't want to go to this family tea, the, her father, and, you know, um, Annabelle's mother is like, you're good enough to take his money. You're going to be good enough to go over to that tea. Like, yeah. where is it that people can, I mean, it's so amazing how much she's doing with how little well, and there's such converse, there's a lot of conversation right now in romance about like what is the work of historicals, yeah, right? Like, and we're having a lot of really important conversations about race and um, sexuality and gender and and things. And I think that class often gets left out of that conversation because yeah. it feels like we're all writing in this rarefied community of people with titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the truth is that this book is all, I mean, the there are many books that are tackling this very real push-pull of money versus yeah. no money, poverty versus wealth or, you know, aristocracy or title or prominence versus... Mm-hmm. The right. other. And I think historical often does this class conversation almost better than it does any of the other conversations. Yeah, I would think so. I agree. Um, yeah. Because it's, you know, it's it's put up against, it's set in a world where class is everything. Right? Like, just what I was saying last week, right? Like, if you're going to, right, you put the book in the place where you can answer the question. Yeah. And, I mean, I do think, so my, I think everyone knows that my mom is English and, you know, and I, I think, and it's funny because over the last couple of weeks, there's, like I said, been a lot of royal family conversation around and, you know, the institution and the firm and the whatever. (laughs) And, um. There was a great John Oliver clip that maybe we can take the audio of and pop in here where um, he gets asked by Steve, he's on Stephen Colbert and Colbert is, and John Oliver is obviously English. You know, it's about <laughs> Meghan Markle. It's right before the royal wedding. And he says, like, I would not blame her if she pulled out of this at the last minute. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think you need to have just seen the pilot episode of The Crown to get a basic sense of she might be marrying into a family that could cause her some emotional complications. <laughs> but this generation seems like nice people, right? They're all nice now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, they're, they're, a, they're an emotionally stunted group of fundamentally flawed people doing a very silly pseudo-job. That's what she's marrying into. So I, I hope she likes it. It's going to be weird for her. I, I, I would not marry into the royal family. I'm, I'm a commoner. I would not be welcome, especially after what I've just said. This class issue is so immense. And you're never allowed in. Like, really allowed in. And I think that's something that... Um, here in America, in the United States, we don't fully understand because we have a, we have an, a kind of national pride that we can all pull ourselves up and become sure president. Well, and even Meghan Markle said this in the in the episode or the interview with Oprah, where she said, "Like I grew up in Los Angeles, I thought you know I saw movie stars, I thought I knew what it meant." Yeah, and it's nothing like that, right? Like, so there's so. I think that when historicals take on class as a as a discussion like this, it's so powerful. Right. Because we can really see it tracked in our own existence. I would I would say it was fascinating reading, right? It really was I thought it was brilliant. 
But at the same time, I will admit that it doesn't really feel like a romance. It doesn't. Right? Like, they, they end up happy at the end, but it you don't get so much of the... Part the, like, of it is novella. Yeah, maybe. Right? Like, uh, which I think is... I think we, we've talked about this before. Novellas are... It is tricky you right. to do as much as she is doing in this and also make it feel breathless, right? Right. Part of it is Balog. Part of it is seriousness. Yes. Like right. gravitas. And just the structure, right? I mean, so the other thing about time, and we've talked about this, like, it's so rare in a romance to, like, be like, okay, now it's five years later, now it's ten years later. And so, you know, that feeling of, like, dipping in and out, and then also, like, not necessarily knowing what's going on, it it doesn't have that same, like, ramp up, that emotional ramp up that we're sort of used to. Right. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I found it to be hugely satisfying, yeah. but in a very different kind of way, which is why, like, as you said, this wouldn't be, like, the balog I would, like, you know, recommend to anybody first. But as a romance reader, I think it's very interesting to think about kind of, like, who these characters are, who gets to take the lead. I mean, you know, we realize at the end, essentially, Reggie reveals that the entire plan they used was Annabelle's plan. Because he was like, let's just get ruined. And, and you know, I, she was like, you dummy. <laughs> yeah, we can't just get ruined. Yeah. And I felt like there was something about that, too. Like, the way in which it was very poignant to me that she was the one who came up with the plan, but also the one that suffered the most under it. Yeah. It was so hard for her. I mean, it was a sacrifice, right? She yes. made a massive sacrifice for him. And for her family, right? Like yes. There's, oh, it's a lot. Yes. yes. And that her mom kind of figures out some of it. Like, she basically just thinks, like, you just wanted to get away from that marriage. She doesn't seem to put together that it was to get, like, that Reggie was on board, right? But at the same time, anybody who reads historicals for real knows that this marriage is ruined. Like, she's ruined anyway. Right? Yeah. She never gets welcomed back into the fold. She married a coal miner's son. Right. Right. So she's giving up. And I don't know that I would say it's giving. It's clear it's not giving up. Right? Like, she wants it. She's making this choice, and she's choosing to turn her back on, again, this era, like, this class thing. Because she sees value in the other. I also thought that it was interesting that Bella kind of, like, Waves away. So Reggie is established in the first chapter as being, you know, rakish and like a, you know, he wears, you know, high heel boots and like, you know, waistcoats, designed waistcoats. Um, and he's really like a wastrel and a layabout. And then at the end, he's like, and I had to do that for a year. For a year, right. To convince my father that it was an emergency. He had to force me to marry. Yes. And that's the part that's, like, fascinating, too, is, like, the payoff for them, right? Like, so the payoff for us as readers is, like, this is, their relationship has been building forever. And then we realize, like, just how long their plan was really going to take to come to fruition, Right? Like, it had to hinge upon the season. It had to hinge upon, right, like, waiting. I mean, like, so that was the other part that was fat. It was fascinating. It really was. I found it to be, even though I knew, although then here's the thing, though. I don't know if anybody else is like this. So at the end of chapter two, I'm like, these two, it's their plan. But then I was like, is it their plan? Or am I being tricked into thinking it's their plan? Right? Like, there's, like, that meta conversation you have with yourself Mm -hmm. as a reader, where, again, like, you're like, I'm paying attention to things. No, but it feels like a shoe is going to drop. Yeah. And I think that's also the value. Like I said, time slip makes you feel like you're about to discover something terrible. Yes. Right? You're about to see everything fall apart. Right? And you're right. But in chapter two, you're like, oh, these two are going to fall in love. Right? I've read romance novels before. Right. This is how this goes. Like, right. childhood friends. Sure. And now they don't want to marry each other, so something terrible has happened. And you're sort of, like, prepared for it emotionally, and you're watching it. You're watching the train move forward, 
And I think cognitively you're like, something terrible is going to happen. I I think it's really interesting because I do think she, like I said, she innately trusts her readers, but also she's, she is manipulating you. She knows that that's how you are conditioned as a romance reader to be reading this book. And therefore, yeah, she is going to twist it around on you. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking as we were talking, my Mm. favorite like time slip makes meaning is actually the movie Pulp Fiction. Yes. Because. Which I saw like seven times in the movie theater when I was in high school. So maybe this is why I love time slip. Right. Like if you, so like John Travolta, like they're in the diner, right? John Travolta makes a different decision than um, Samuel L. Jackson. Mm -hmm. And then like one dies and one lives at the end of the movie. But if Mm -hmm. you tell it in its straight order, like the, the payoff of that moment is gone. Sure. And we're conditioned by all media to do this, right? This is why um, television shows that begin with a cold open and then it says, like, two weeks earlier. Yes. Right? Right. Like, I love that. How did we get there? Yeah. Because now we're talking about storytelling. And I think that's the part about this that's really interesting is that question of, like, well, what's the story that Mary Ballag was trying to tell here? And it's like, here here are two people who know they're right for each other. They have fallen in love already. How do they preserve and even, like, fix something that has been broken in their families for 30 years? Yeah. Right? And get what they want out of it. And that's a different story than how did they fall in love. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I mean, now that you've said Romeo and Juliet coming off of Kate's episode, I wonder if we are looking at a retelling of it. Straight up at the end, he says, like, we were basically star-crossed lovers. Yeah. I very much felt, like, those echoes. And maybe, like you said, it was because of Kate. But the whole, like, you know, we were warring families and, you know, 30 yeah. years. and Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly it's so, it tracks. Yeah. Anyway, like I said, it's not where I would start people with Balog usually. I do think that it's worth reading that Bedouin saga. It's really delicious. If you liked her writing at all, I also think, um, you know, there is, she really has a lock on the serious romance. Yes. um, Right. Which is really rare. You know, there's the kind of McNaught school of like everything is very big emotion and like his, you know, really really big mm-hmm. and then there's the um the the garwood school of everything's clever and funny and you know moving forward from there and um i think that balog is one of is maybe the kind of grandmother of the serious story there's so much tenderness in this book. It's really romantic. Yeah. Yes, deeply. And, and not like, you know, an arrow pinned her to my armor romantic. Like, no. Just like a normal person romantic. Right. And I think part of that is because, I mean, again, so this is, I think, the trick is, because I was looking back at my annotations, the things I highlighted, and there's a scene essentially before the wedding where now again remember in in a in a straight telling of this book these parents are just monsters but instead they're deeply human themselves and in both cases before the wedding we get a scene where the parents come in and are sort of apologetic like i know i forced you to do this but if it's really the wrong thing you don't have to do it and reggie um you know so his dad says how are you feeling and reggie says i'm nervous i admit i'm terrified i will drop the ring at the last moment And his father says, then you will simply bend down and pick it up. And I was, like, laying in my bed crying. Like, sometimes the simplest advice, right, is the one that's, like, the most beautiful. Like, you just pick it up and keep trying. You know, you pick it up and you bend down and pick it up. And I just thought that there was a way in which this is, like, the even your problematic parents and their shitty feud is, like, how do I respect this? And, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, it's... It's just a grown up. Yeah, it really is. Love grows. And it 
cult, it's cultivated and the way you feel about somebody when you see them for the first time or you go on your first date yeah. is not the way you feel when you are truly deeply in love with somebody and living a life with them and being a partner to them yeah. is vastly different as an emotion. And so, and I think that's what she was getting at. And I think that that's what her books really are about. Show. Yeah. We talk a lot in our family up to our son. Like, you can tell how someone's going to treat you by how they treat their family, right? And so there's this amazing part of this book where you're really like, here are these two people who are like, we, our families are being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we love them, so we're going to find this way where, like, we're going to bear the pain for a little bit so that we don't all have to bear it for the rest of our lives, right? And it's, it's, it was, I really thought it was, I don't know, it just made me feel really warm at the end of it. That's the thing about this book. This is not a breathless book. No. And is it possible that I think Reggie's, like, pretty cinnamon rolly? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, this is a really gentle book. Like, if you are looking for a soft romance novel... This is a soft one. And I, I just I just think also, like, if you're a writer out there or if you're a reader who just thinks all romances are structured the same, this one is for you. Or, like, how can using structure remove the things I don't want to talk about and let me do the things I do want to talk about? hmm And yet, I think the other part, though, again, like, back to, like, Butterfly and Frost is your – the choices you make – You know, I, again, go out hunting for big game, but, you know, then, like, really be willing to think through, okay. Well, you have to be able to pull it off. Right. That's the... Right. Like, that is the challenge, always. And you need to have people around you. I mean, this is really for the writers out there, but I have written a lot of books that hunted big game and failed, And I've had a lot of really smart people say, I see what you are trying to do, and it is not working. Yeah. So how can we make it work? So either you're doing it wrong or you shouldn't be doing it at all, right? And I think that um, it's worthy. It's a very worthy endeavor to try it when you have the idea. Yeah, of course. You know, and I think that Bella pulls it off. Yeah. I And I do think that, like, for a lot of readers, readers like me, like, it is a little twisty at the end when you're like, oh, my God, they put it all, they did it themselves. So we talked about unreliable narrators, which I don't necessarily think is important. Here's here's what I do think is important. I really think that when we talk about how authors care for readers, what that essentially means, for the most part, in, like, 99% of romances is you can trust that these people on the page falling in love are who they say they are. They're telling the truth about their experience and about what they're going through and whether or not you like that person. I mean, I think this is even true in like dark romance, for example. The person I am on the page is the person I am and I'm being honest with the, the person or people I'm falling in love with. And I think then when you, that's why so many of us are like, mm, the, peop, the the lie, right? A, a plot that's built on a lie is sometimes really pushes against that for readers. It's why we don't like it. Because we're like, no, that's the bargain. It has to be a really good reason for a It lie. has to be a really good reason for a, a lie. And we have to feel that the hurt it causes is not going to be bigger than whatever. Like, right? And I think that's why, in some ways, this book could have never been, it would have been very difficult, I think, to be like, wait, if you love your parents so much, why are you lying to them like this? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's ultimately then, if you get to the book where a big lie is revealed, you either feel, I think there's two ways that plays out for romance readers. One is, I was bamboozled and I don't like how that feels about me. Or these characters are not well and they need some sort of help and support that just, like, having a partner is not fixing. I agree. I mean, and I think this book reminded me that there are a few hard and fast rules. Right. Right? Every rule can be broken. It unpacked, I mean, short of the HEA, right? Like, it unpacked a rule that we kind of lay down two weeks ago. Yeah. 
I did think it was funny. I highlighted a, a line where the heroine says, you didn't want to feel feelings because men are terrible at feeling feelings. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, this is it. This is the line. <laughs> right? It's just such a quiet book and somehow like really a fast, good, solid read too. Oh, I read it so fast. Absolutely. All right, my friends. So what are we doing next time? We're going to have some an, an interstitial probably. Wait, we're doing Morality Chain. Finally. Katie Robert, we are sorry. <laughs> I know. It's Here okay. we she are. Understands. It's your, it's, it's up. We're doing Morality Chain next week. It's going to be yeah. fun. Eric's going to be, be like, wait, what? Yeah, that's going to be some <laughs> real business. I don't know what book we're going to do after that. I think we have to discuss what what will be coming next in terms of read-along. So keep an eye on Twitter and Instagram. uh, And, of course, we'll announce it next week, too. Um, What else? We are... You can find us at fatedmates.net. We have a beautiful new landing page there. Mm -hmm. You can follow us or like us on your favorite podcasting app. Don't forget to do that. Recommend us to your romance-loving friends. We are produced by Eric Mortensen. It's nap time, Sarah. I'm going to be real honest with you. It's very sunny here. (laughs) It's very sunny, and it's the afternoon, and I might nap too. Live your best life. All right, friends, read good books. 